Um, I watched a bit of the World Cup of okay. uh, rugby and saw Wales and South Africa play a, an epic game. And boy, when I, when I see the size and the speed and the fitness level of those players today, I think I'd be loath to step on the field. Yeah. Uh, but I miss the game. It's a terrific game. And, and Canada, while they've had um, their struggles the last few years, the, the Canadian women's national rugby team is just doing so well. And it's wonderful to see them play. And it's wonderful to see uh, the universities picking up uh, rugby as a, as a full sport. We've got a great podcast to hear for you today. We've got a very special guest. He is a man with a very long uh, introduction. So I'm going to I'm going to truncate a bit of it. I hope he doesn't mind. So uh, he's a former Crown Prosecutor. He is a, a former member of Parliament. He is a former minister, having held a number of high-profile positions, uh, Minister of National Defense, Minister of Foreign Affairs and uh, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, which is where I met him. Uh, he is a father. Uh, he's a mentor and, and a friend of mine. So, uh, Peter McKay, thank you for taking some time out. I appreciate it. Teo, it's a great pleasure and to, to be with you and sit with you, my friend. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And so, Peter, uh, you know, obviously I know you've been asked a lot about the uh, the, the, the election that just passed. Uh, we don't want to get too much into that. I wanted to get more into the legal side, but I would be remiss if I, I didn't ask you about your reflections on this this election now that we're, we've gone through it. Yes, it's still fresh and, and raw, I know, for a lot of people. Um, as a conservative, it's a disappointment, to be sure. We uh, thought that it might have turned out differently and I fact, in fact thought it would be much closer than it was in the final seat count. There's a lot of different reasons for that and what I have found being on both the winning side and the losing side of elections is it's a time for reflection to look back both on policies but uh, on personalities and, and on the issues that matter to Canadians because what we have descended into, unfortunately, is a lot of recriminations and character assassination. There was a lot of negativity, yeah. clearly, to state the obvious. And people are looking for leadership and they're looking for a, a positive uh, platform to vote for as opposed to voting against something. And so I think all parties should try uh, to the best extent that they can to uh, do a lot of self-examination and come up with uh, platforms and, and issues, solutions, practical solutions for people in their lives. Because I know a lot of people are struggling out there. You and I know them. Absolutely. And, um, especially in certain regions of the country, it's easy to get into a bubble. But, you know, where we're from in Atlantic Canada, there are tremendous challenges and out-migration being one of the big ones where yeah. young people have to leave to find work. Absolutely. And then I saw that you were you were helping out a number of candidates uh, across the uh, across the country. So I saw that you were assisting George Canyon in Central Nova. Uh, Kim Fawcett, I believe she was running in a, a Scarborough riding. And there was another gentleman as well. And I, I took a look and I said, um, <laughs> he must feel like he's still campaigning himself. I mean, one, how did you find the time? And then I just kind of want to talk about, uh, I mean, how did you choose? Obviously, Central Nova was was your your riding. Uh, you held it for a long time, but uh, there's a number of Toronto ridings. Why the particular Toronto candidates? 
Well, firstly, Teo, I still have a home in Central Nova. My, my father, brother, uh, lots of family and friends live there. And I get back as often as humanly possible. So when George Canyon, who's a friend of mine, um, decided to step forward and, and run for the Conservative Party, I felt uh, motivated and, and inclined to help him to the degree that I could and to be there as often as I could. And that's a writing I know well, um, and it's a writing that's that's challenged, not only on the employment side, but cost of living, um, issues that, uh, that I dealt with during the 18 years I represented Central Nova, so I, I was glad to help out. Other candidates, um, some because of the proximity to where we're currently living in the beach with uh, Scarborough right next door and Kimberly Fawcett being a former serving member of the Canadian Forces who uh, is just an, an incredible person. I mean, a truly inspirational person. And uh, I would say the same for Nadira Nazir. She's a very impressive woman, a Muslim woman with a business background who dove in with both feet and, and really worked hard during the campaign. And I saw that from a lot of candidates across GTA, across uh, parts of Montreal and Quebec. I went down and campaigned. And look, I'm not a blind partisan. I would say the same for the vast, vast majority of people who I met both in the Parliament of Canada and around politics. People choose to put their name on a ballot, uh, which is a courageous choice. They do it out of a sense of service to the community. There are often issues, specific issues that they may associate themselves with that they want to advance that cause or they simply want to build a better community. And, and that's admirable. That's exactly what people should do. And that's what democracy demands. Right. And regardless of outcomes, we have to thank our lucky stars every day yeah. that we have this process in Canada. Uh, interestingly, during the time that our election was going on, there was one happening in Afghanistan. Wow. And having spent time there, Teo, as you know, uh, during the conflict and uh, during my time at National Defense, I saw a country who uh, will never take democracy for granted. I mean, people's lives were literally at stake when they went to the ballot box. Um, there could be mines outside the ballot uh, voting area, yeah. just as there was around schools and public institutions. And there are horrible things that happen to people who try to bring about a positive change in that country. So by, uh, by comparison, we are... We are gifted, we're lucky, we have uh, everything to be thankful for, and that's why we should vote. Yeah, and it really puts it into perspective. So I believe on Twitter, uh, maybe the day after or a few days after the election, I saw essentially the, the sentiment that, okay, well, my representative didn't get voted in, therefore I'm not represented. And I thought, well, no, that's that's not the way this works here, and let's let's take a step back. I mean, the person you you may have wanted, you know, they didn't, they didn't get voted in, but you still are represented and you may not be represented exactly in the way that you want, but we need to step back and you use the example of Afghanistan and, uh, you know, it's just a great example of, well, we do have something very special here and, uh, we, you are represented. I mean, let's not, uh, be trivial about, about that term and about... You're absolutely right. And just because the person you may have voted for didn't come out with the plurality and the most votes, you are still represented. That's that's the way our system works. And you're represented by a government that has the support. Now, in this case, it's a bit of an anomaly because the, the eventual winner, in this case, the Liberal Party, had less plurality than, than Andrew Scheer's Conservative Party. 
Nevertheless, that's the way our system works in the first past the post system. And you are represented. It's representative democracy and it's uh, it's flawed and it has its uh, shortcomings. But as Churchill said, compared to all the others, it's the best. Yeah. And we're, uh, we're, we're fortunate in that way. And you know what, here's the other thing. In two or three or four years, uh, people get to vote again. And uh, that's the way it works in terms of the accountability mechanism that is also built in, baked into the system. If people don't perform, there is a chance that they will lose their job. They have to keep coming back and uh, proving their value to to the electorate. And that, again, that keeps people uh, in line. Yes, and, and just to switch gears here now, I mean, people associate you with, I think, just being government, being an MP, and with reason. I believe you were an MP for 18 years? 18 years, yeah, it went by very fast. Did it? And I, and I didn't intend to be in politics that long, or even at all. My, my father was in politics for longer than me. And uh, I had sort of chosen a different path, although it was all, my dad was also a lawyer. My mother was a social activist and an educator. And um, she was arguably as influential, maybe more so in my life than, than my dad. And so I wasn't on some predetermined path to mm-hmm. go into politics. It was really a chance encounter that I had with Jean Charest that, that convinced me that maybe I should run. Okay, well, well, let's let's get into that. I mean, uh, I was going to ask you about a little bit before that time, but maybe let's get into that encounter. Well, I, I was working. I graduated from Dow Law School. I was working as a Crown Prosecutor initially. Then I was doing some defense work with legal aid in Nova Scotia. I had my own small practice for a period of time. Uh, something quite catastrophic happened in my hometown. There was an explosion in a mine, uh, the Westray Mine, that yes. <clears throat> resulted in charges, criminal charges against the mine owners and and operators uh, for criminal negligence causing death. And they took all of the senior Crown attorneys in the region and put them on that file, understandably given the enormity of the case. And so I was a a person who had been doing a lot of pro bono work, or sorry, uh, per diem work for the Crown. And as a result, I ended up doing more and more. And then I became a full-time Crown attorney. And that experience was formative and and incredible. I uh, took everything that came in the door from impaired driving cases right up to and including first degree murder cases. And so it was an intense learning experience, a courtroom experience that I wanted. That was always what I had intended to do um, coming out of law school. Right. So it was a dream come true at an er- early age. I didn't expect to, to be doing those type of cases so early in my career. And so let's pinpoint this year in your late 20s, early 30s at this point. Yeah, this is early um, early 90s and then um, right up to around 1997 when I first ran. So yeah, a few years out of law school. I, in fact, had the fortunate experience to go to the Supreme Court of Canada on okay. a case that involved a very narrow issue of the plain view doctrine and video gaming devices in front of a full panel at the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, Mr. Justice Lemaire was the uh, the chief at that time. And I, uh, I just had that very, very privileged and uh, intimidating and amazing right. experience to go before the court. And, and were you bombarded? I mean, because, uh, you know, Supreme Court hearings, it just depends, right? So you may get a lot of questions. They may listen a bit. I mean, what was your experience there? Well, fortunately for us, while we had lost uh, the, the case um, at the original trial, one on appeal, 
It was an as-of-right appeal to the Supreme Court, and the defense were sort of on their heels based on the questioning uh, before the panel. So we, we got off fairly light. But I'll never forget showing up there in February with a, you know, a Sobeys bag with my factum in it. And it, it just was a, no it was a surreal experience to go there and, and argue a case. But, you know, not long after that, you could come back to your question about the, the chance encounter with Jean Charest. He was in Halifax at the old Nova Scotian Hotel on the waterfront. And um, I, I was in, in the city and, and ended up meeting him at this, uh, this particular event. And he said, you know, you really should consider running. This would have been in 1996. And I said, well, you know, my, my dad did that. And I haven't built, you know, truly been involved in politics to that extent. And, and I started thinking about some of the shortcomings and the flaws that I saw in the justice system and the anomalies that I think were in the Young Offenders Act that were not working. And I truly felt uh, motivated at that point in my life to try to bring about some changes and you, you start to think logically well where are the laws made how does one affect an amendment to the criminal code or the youth criminal justice act well ottawa is the place to do it um, i didn't think i would get there as quickly as i did normally there's a nomination process that had already been declared and was underway in central nova there were four people already declared before I jumped into the race. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll try it this time, experience it and, and look at it again in the future. And, and wait, and that was for the nomination? That was for the nomination. Okay. And, um, you know, I did what most candidates do, went out and sold memberships to the Conservative Party. A lot of the people who signed up, I don't think were conservatives at that time, perhaps, or they weren't declared. And we've, we had to move the venue several times because the, so many people got involved in this race. That's always a good sign. It's a good sign. And it was a hotly contested seat. And um, at the end of the day, it was a full day of voting, several ballots. I ended up winning on the last ballot. And uh, then we had an election in June, which was you know only four or five months away. But as a result of winning the nomination, and I had sought approval from the Crown Attorney's Office and from you know the Regional Crown, they uh, had given me approval, but lo and behold, the Director of Public Prosecutions then reneged and said, no, you can't do this. You'll have to either forfeit the nomination or quit. And I said, well, I don't think that's the case. And it was an antiquated law in place um, in Nova Scotia in the Civil Service Act that said doctors, dentists, and lawyers are not permitted to be politically active. So I challenged that, um, did get fired, uh, sued the government of Nova Scotia. That case went on for a number of years. Wow, I didn't know that. And uh, eventually they, they changed the law. Okay. I didn't know that. That's interesting. It was something I, I, uh, I wouldn't recommend as a launch of your political career, but it certainly gave me a degree of, of notoriety and it was in all the papers. And, but it was pretty traumatic to lose your job, especially yeah. something that you loved. Yeah. Uh, so it, uh, it opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I know you mentioned uh, as a crown your reflections on, on the system and perhaps some of your misgivings. And I know you've previously commented on the way the system treats victims of crime. And full disclosure, uh, I worked in your office while you were Minister of Justice, Attorney General of Canada. Um, it, for me, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, but I just wanted to 
to discuss that aspect as far as victims of crime. I mean, you were a crown prosecutor um, and then kind of full circle, you had an opportunity to be Minister of Justice, Attorney General, and, and, and affect change when it came to that. Well, and you were, you were part of it, as you mentioned, Teo, the, uh, the Victims' Bill of Rights was a, a passion project that we were able to implement at the Department of Justice. And I did reflect very much back to my time as a Crown Attorney, back to some of those aforementioned shortcomings where, at the risk of oversimplifying it, we don't seem to have the balance right in terms of violent crime and crimes that affect children, vulnerable people, and crimes that are, let's describe them as property related or uh, crimes that certainly don't have the, the long lasting, truly detrimental impact, violent impact on people's lives. And how in particular, some of the sentences seem to me very out of line with yeah. that reality. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are also flaws in some cases within certain systems. The, the current government has made changes to the, the way in which we uh, have preliminary inquiries, for example, or select juries. Yes. I'm not sure that they have made the proper calculation there. And, you know, you're a practitioner. You might be able to speak to that better than I. And so the system of law clearly, as has been described, is a, a living tree. And I think it's, it's incumbent upon governments and ministers of justice in particular to prune and tend that tree with a great deal of caution and a great deal of prudence in terms of the accuracy that, uh, that they're trying to achieve because the effects can be catastrophic. Wrongful convictions uh, are horrific, but so too are the the lasting uh, impact that a failure in the justice system can have on a victim. Right. And the feeling that they have been betrayed or re-victimized is something that I often heard from victims who felt that not only did the trial not go as expected, but the way they were treated. When I was first practicing criminal law, we didn't have victim impact statements. Mm -hmm. We didn't have advocates in the court that were there to stand up for victims and, and work with the Crown and the police in the presentation of the case. We certainly didn't have some of the, what I would consider compassionate improvements that have been put in place to protect children and vulnerable individuals right. where they can testify via video or using a screen yes. or having a comfort animal, for example, in the courtroom. Yeah. Those make perfect sense, and they're practical improvements. And so, um, without getting into all the detail of the Victims' Bill of Rights, that was meant to entrench some of those protections right. within our system. We have the Bill of Rights for everyone, but quite frankly, um, on balance, it didn't seem to be doing enough to ensure that the criminal justice system was working for victims. And let's never forget that victims are in the justice system through no fault of their own. Exactly. exactly. They're, the, they're the true innocents in all of this. Yeah. And we do sometimes overlook that in our rush to ensure fairness, which we must do, but also fairness for victims and, and fairness for victims' families too, who are disproportionately affected when uh, when their loved ones are, are harmed or worse. Yeah. And so just to, uh, to, to shift gears here, uh, I, I first got involved and developed an interest in government and in, in politics uh, 
I was in high school, so around 2004, 2005, which you'll remember was the, the height of the sponsorship scandal. And uh, and my interest started by watching Question Period, which which now I realize wow, it's probably the... Wow, in high school, w- you were watching Question Period? It, it was, but you know... Come on, man. <laughs> but yeah, that, that tells you a lot about my high school experience. But, uh, but now I realize that Question Period probably wasn't the most informative uh, way to kind of learn about politics. But I remember watching Question Period, and I remember watching you in the House of Commons. And once again, I'm a neophyte, I'm new to this, and I thought, hey... This guy he seems relatable. He's from Nova Scotia. I'm from Nova Scotia. He's young. He's he's well spoken. I wanted to be a lawyer. You were a lawyer, so I, I early on developed an interest in your career, and I just thought you were very capable. Um, and then I kind of followed you throughout government, and it kind of went full circle. I had the opportunity to work in your office, which was which was great. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about your time in government because, as I mentioned at the outset, you've had the opportunity to serve the country. And I think that's an important word to use is serve, right? I mean, we forget that. And I think sometimes, uh, uh, and I'm speaking about the current government, uh, I just feel like maybe that, that service part we need to keep in mind. But serving the government as national Minister of National Defense, Foreign Affairs, I just wanted to talk about maybe your your fondest moment or some of your fondest moments. I don't know if you could pick one, but... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for uh, for the kind words and the fact that you, you followed some of my career. It seemed to go by very fast, and, and it does, I, I suspect, for most people. Um, it's a life where you're going back and forth between the nation's capital. With me, I went home as much as I possibly could, which was easier in opposition, but it meant literally living on an airplane and, and maintaining two homes. And let's not forget, you are compensated for this. I don't want to make it sound like you're doing this you know, free, but I, I, I truly enjoyed my time in opposition in many ways because it was like being in a courtroom. And the House of Commons in many ways is styled as a courtroom and you address the speaker as you would a judge. And uh, an interesting side note, when I first arrived there, that's exactly what I was doing. And Jean Charest had asked me to be his house leader. And that's more of a procedural role where you speak up and advocate on behalf of the party and you take part in probably more debates. And we had a, a very small caucus the first uh, the first year that I was elected. We. Um, we had 20 members of parliament and we subsequently went down to 12, which is the, yeah. the bare threshold. And yet uh, we, in the classic Canadian sense, punched above our weight. We were able to get on the agenda and speak on all the bills and take part in the committees. And I was doing it in a very formal way. And Jean Charest pulled me aside one day and said, look, I know exactly what's happening here because I did the same thing when I arrived. And he said, you can't forget that you're not just speaking in this chamber and to the, the assembled, you're, you're speaking to the nation. And so you have to be a little bit more outward in your presentation. And so I took that on board and everybody develops their own style. But I have to point out, Teo, as you know, question period is not really indicative of what happens in parliament, in government. And it's really the committee work and a lot of what goes on out of sight, the, the classic sausage making that uh, that gets things done around the hill in terms of legislation and what moves. Some of my fondest memories really uh, were the outcomes, uh, the, the Victims' Bill of Rights being one of them, at Foreign Affairs, working uh, on issues where Canada's reputation was at stake and Canada's role in the world was hopefully being advanced by our government's efforts one of the things that we did early days in 2006 was really facilitate the evacuation of Canadians out of Lebanon. 
in Beirut in particular, but all over that country because of a war that had broken out. And the logistics of doing that, I was ably assisted by the public service to affect that, uh, that evacuation. I learned very quickly the importance of relationships and working with foreign ministers in other countries to affect that change. And I would say the same of NATO meetings and G8, then G7 meetings, uh, G20s, um, the uh, Organization of American States working in the Caribbean with other countries, very important. And you feel the weight of your office when you're abroad and you're representing your country. So I have fond memories of working with other nations, working with individuals who had uh, tremendous experience and tremendous acumen within the role. Condoleezza Rice comes to mind as one of those people who I had the good fortune to work with and, and to get to know at a personal level. She is somebody who brought such breadth of knowledge. Um, she came from a world of academia, but also worked in the security field and advised presidents before she became Secretary of State. Yeah, she's she's interesting, just to interject, because uh, the American system, I mean, I think we talk about the American system maybe a bit too derisively as Canadians. Uh, I mean, uh, we say their system is divisive. Well, I mean, ours is too, but uh, it's just they're just different systems. But Condoleezza Rice, I mean, she's a figure that She's one of the few that where I feel she gets quite a bit of respect from both sides. I think that's true. She's symbolic of somebody who cuts across some of that partisan divide. John McCain was another. Yeah. I had and that's enormous respect for John. It is rare and, it, and it's needed. We need to get back to that civility and the recognition, as you pointed out at the very beginning, that democracy dictates who our representatives are. And we need to respect that. And uh, while it's competitive and on certain issues, it'll inevitably become heated and emotional. But recognizing that we serve the people Absolutely. in democracies is something we need to constantly go back to as, as job one. And I really, I feel blessed to have had the, the political career that I did. But for the purposes of our discussion here, many of the, the foundations upon which I built the experience and, and hopefully some degree of capability and, and effort to make things happen, affect change, came from the practice of law right. and came from that experience in my hometown and in the city of Halifax yeah. when I began my, my career as a lawyer. And being an advocate, I think, is what representatives need to be. And that's not just incumbent upon lawyers or doctors or certain professions. I mean, the beauty of our system is that anybody can run. Anybody right. based on their capability, ambition, experience yeah. can become a member of parliament. Absolutely. And I think that that may be less true in some countries, including the United States, because of the monetary yeah. demands. To be president now, I'm, I'm told that it will cost you a billion dollars in mm -hmm. funds raised, which is out of reach for yeah. most people. <laughs> to say the least, yeah. But, you know, I want to come back quickly to something you said a moment ago, and that is people's attitudes about the United States of America. Look, there's just no getting away from it, not only because of geography and trade and, and our shared history, but the United States is the most important ally that we have on the planet. And regardless of who occupies the White House at this moment in time, this relationship is enduring, is important, will very much influence Canada's future. We need to be painfully aware of that, both in good times and in bad. And so I, I often remind people when they're 
railing a little bit about uh, the, the latest tweets that may have come from the White House or declarations that have been made. We will get past this, but let's not uh, ever forget and let's not stop respecting the relationship that we share as Americans and Canadians. We're really the same people on so many things when it comes to our common values and our, our shared ambition. And so, Peter, when I was working in your office, I mean, one of the things that, that really, really took me by surprise was your schedule. And just <laughs> how, many, how many events were in your schedule? And then I expected... Uh, after Friday, I expected to see a little bit of a pause on, on Saturday and Sundays, and I, I didn't see that pause. So uh, the schedule was insane. I mean, it was, I, I don't know how you did it. And and furthermore, um, I would have expected you to be, I mean, if I was in that position, I might be a bit cranky in the mornings. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, you might be able to see the uh, the exasperation, but I, I didn't. I didn't see that. It was well. It was. It was a punishing schedule to be sure, Theo. And I'm. I'm glad that you. Uh, you felt I didn't ever get cranky. I, I tried deliberately not to be. Um, you know, that was something that your mother and my mother both instilled in us. I think when we were young, is you have to respect people, especially those who you work with. And I just felt it was such a, a blessing to be in that office, and I tried to relish. Uh, every moment that I had and, and to try to get as much done as I possibly could. Because of the nature of being a member of parliament and being a minister, you do have obligations back in your constituency. So by design, given the size of this country geographically, it, it involved a lot of travel. Not as much as when I was foreign minister, but at the Justice Department, you, you know, you're interfacing with all the provinces and, and other provincial ministers of justice. And we had big big issues before us. I mean, assisted dying, the Supreme Court had just come down with, uh, with that decision. The Bedford decision had come down, which struck the prostitution laws that had been in the criminal code for over 100 years. And so we had a lot happening, um, not to mention Aboriginal cases before the courts, challenges that required a great deal of attention and a great deal of detail. And as you know, we have this bifurcated role of Minister of Justice and Attorney General which has been in the news and been discussed in the aftermath of the SNC-Lavalin case. Uh, so it, it was a busy time, um, but I'm, I'm grateful for every moment that I was there. And being at the Department of Justice really reinvigorated my love of the law. And so when I made the decision to leave in 2015 to not reoffer uh, and to return to the practice of law, I was feeling like I had a bounce in my step. And I'm lucky I've always had, I think, a, a big battery. And part of that came from sport and being active physically. And I, I tried uh, as best I could to transition then quickly into the, the practice of law. And so what's your schedule like now? I trust it's it's not as demanding, but you're father of three, so it's <laughs> different things on the schedule. Now. Well, Teo, as a new dad, you know, uh, one of the, the things you quickly accept is that your your sleep deprivation is something you, you have to adapt to. Um, and my kids are, are thankfully, thank God, healthy and, and active kids. And so... Yes, you need to keep a little bit of reserve in the tank. So when you go home at the end of the day, you're going to be able to uh, to pick up a hockey stick and play and uh, to, to sit down and, and do events and, and do uh, homework with your kids. Um, and, and my schedule here is manageable. And, and the difference, of course, in private life is that you have the ability to say no, which is more limited when you're in, in public office. Uh, but it, it's a big firm. Baker McKenzie is a large global firm. We have offices, 79 offices in 
50 countries around the world. And so I'm called upon to travel on occasion, mainly to the States, but to the UK and, and a bit to Asia and Europe. I'm practicing compliance law, so corporate commercial, but advising Canadian companies who are doing business abroad or helping companies who are coming into Canada I see. To, uh, to set up. And so it's regulatory work. It's, it's looking out for uh, regulatory traps, but corruption, bribery in the supply chain. It's in many ways the natural uh, extension of having been a prosecutor in that you're trying, you, you, it's preventative work. You're trying to keep people out of trouble, yeah. keep businesses from going afoul of the law, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It, it's, I, I find it very rewarding and I find it increasingly critically important for businesses and enterprises to know uh, what their plan is going to be, uh, particularly if a regulator, regulator or an investigator shows up at the door and says, hey, there's a problem. You need to have a plan in place. Absolutely. It's a bit like insurance. You yeah. know, you have to have that insurance. Hopefully you're never going to use it. But if you don't have it and catastrophe hits, then you're really in deep water. Yeah. Peter, thank you for taking time out. I know you've got uh, a busy day ahead of you, but I do appreciate you taking the time out and to speak with us. Teo, it's been a tremendous pleasure. I'm so glad to see you again. And let's, let's talk again soon. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe on iTunes podcast, and feel free to share and spread the word.